how do you go about making your voice sound like someone else's? And why would you? I'll be chatting to a bunch of people who can answer those questions and many more as they reveal the dark arts of impressionists. I'm Simon Lipson, and this is Making an Impression. I'm joined today by singer, actress, voiceover, and of course, impressionist Jessica Martin. Jessica, how are you? Hello, Simon. I'm really well. Can we add another thing onto that list? Of course. Of course you are. Yes. Artist. Yes. Uh, I'm a graphic novelist. I'm a comic writer and artist, So, which is something we'll talk about later because it, I think it ties in with the fact that I started as an impressionist. Were you the introvert, you know, quietly sitting in your room, uh, knocking out voices to amuse yourself? Or were you the entertainer the family said Jessica come on come and do some stuff come and sing come and do some voices what where did you fall perhaps in between absolutely in between those two I was not an introverted child but I was a child who was one of two but people often say to me oh I always thought you were an only child because I think I give off this aura of being very much an individual person As a young girl, I was curious and I could spend a lot of time quite happily on my own, engaged in my little fantasies about films that I'd seen on television and acting them out in my head. I wouldn't be acting them out in the bathroom. And this feeling of empathising and wanting to step into a story was, I think, where I started with my falling into characters. Certainly in my mum's case, Every day there was the story happening, even if we'd just been out for a trip to the shops, she would reenact the person, you know, the person who'd been taking us into the changing room and giving us our tickets. And then the the loud Australian woman who'd been sitting in the cafe. And we just kind of fall into these voices. Mum and I would just pretend to be Australian or, hey, let's be American or (laughs) let's (laughs) pretend we're from Golden Screen, you know, whatever. (laughs) So um, my mother had this talent for having the talking stick, but making it interesting and engaging with these voices. So I didn't view doing voices as a talent. There was a show called The Cilla Black Show on BBC on a Saturday night, and that was our Strictly Come Dancing. Cilla entertained and she had guests, and it would always start with, Something tells me something's gonna happen tonight. And she yeah. it was like it was anticipatory. You know, the something tells me there was something in her voice that was promising something and like a breathlessness, even in the vibrato, that she just was a kind of total personality with a Liverpoolian accent and the way she looked and the glamorous gowns. I just, you know, I went into my Scylla world. And then I'd have to bring on my own guest stars on this fake show for the cousins and the uncles and aunts. So it might be Hilda Ogden singing The Hills Are Alive when I'll stand make us another cup of tea. No, I'll do it myself, you lazy slob. My late father, Edo Martin, he was of Filipino ethnicity and he was a jazz musician. From when I was about three years old, he would have his jazz musician friends round for an amazing, like, sort of Southeast Asian lunch on a Sunday. And Daddy would say, okay, Jessica, bearing in mind I was like two and a half, three, Jessica's going to come up, and what am I going to sing? 
Marina, Aqua Marina. <laughs> the theme from Stingray. I had absolutely no self-consciousness. When you, so when you were doing your early renditions, were, were they mainly singing impressions? I think the spoken impressions were something that happened later on. So, so I'm at home doing these impressions for my friends. Actually, not my friends, for my family. My friends weren't really aware of any of my performing stuff until in primary school, I remember I got cast along with my best friend. We both got cast as Yum Yum in the Mikado and suddenly it was quiet Jessica. Oh my God, she sings and she acts and she enjoys being in the limelight. Once you finished at school, what, what was your next step? Okay, so my next step was I went to Westfield College, which was part of London University and I did a degree in English and drama and the drama was at Central School of Speech and Drama which was just literally up the road from our college which was in Hampstead and for me that was a bit of a consolation prize because in my heart of hearts I wanted to go and do a vocational drama course but you know I got my A-levels and hey I went to university and actually it is correct you know what people used to say oh you need something to fall back on the mimicking thing stayed with me and I used to do impressions of my fellow actors in my drama society productions and I used to do Kate Bush was one of my favourites you know so I mean I could talk like her but I could sing like her in all the different wild sort of singings which led to the indie singer that we have in the 21st century yeah yeah but I used to do Kate Bush and I used to do Julie Andrews. So um, at the Edinburgh Festival, I remember rallying everybody. Come on, we're going to leaflet. Come on, children. do a deer, a female deer. By wonderful serendipity, there was a young guy who was also at the Edinburgh Festival with his uni. He was at King's College and they were doing a review and he did amazing impressions. And that guy was Rory Bremner. Rory, yeah. Our particular group had um, we were given a turn at the Edinburgh Fringe Student Club and we had to get up and everyone said, like, oh, Jessica, do your impression, do your impression. So I just got up, had no material, but I just, you know, don't tell me not to live, I simply got to. So it was Barbara, it was uh, Toy Wilcox, it was Janet Street Polsha, and I just did all these impressions, uh, you know, just winging it. Yeah. And Rory came up to me afterwards and he was so sweet. He was just really confident. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness, you're, you're, you're like a girl impressionist. This is amazing. You've got to join our troupe. Story is, is all about not getting what you want. So, of course, I didn't join his troupe. We, we didn't actually meet until two years later. The Fimbra Theatre used to be a fringe theatre. Yeah. And it was run by a lady called Nika Burns, who is now the head of NIMAX Theatres. She's a, yes. a big noise. But anyway, Nika was running this fringe place. I had an open mic spot with a guy from my college. We decided to take destiny by the hands. We were going to get our equity cards doing a cabaret act. And unfortunately, it didn't work. Mm -hmm. But I did do my impression. So (laughs) I'd be doing, I want to be loved by you. (laughs) Totally nothing to do with the sketches. Anyway, the next act that went on was... um, it was doing a bit of a Richie Benno impression and it was, it was Rory, it was Rory Bremner. Yes. And he came out through the curtains into the corridor and he just thought, Jessica, Rory, yes. Edinburgh, yes. You said, I know, I know I said I'd use you. I'm so sorry, so sorry. But anyway, are you free on Monday? 
I'm doing this radio show and they need a girl impressionist and you just be perfect. So to cut a long story short, Rory held my hand, introduced me to a chap called Graham Frost, who was producing News Review for LBC Radio. And they had a team of Rory, Simon Mattox, Andrina Carroll, and I became the second girl. My purpose was to do the voices. It, it, you know, it was a little bit like spitting image except for the puppet so we were doing topical sketches lots of prominent characters and at that point you know my repertoire as you rightly said was mainly singers mm. I didn't I wasn't really interested in in satire and political caricatures but suddenly it was like um okay so Jessica you know uh we, we've got a sketch here Rory's going to do Neil Kinnock. Can you do Margaret Thatcher? Well, of course I could, because even if I'd never seen Margaret Thatcher, I'd seen Janet Brown on her Impressionist show every week doing Margaret Thatcher. So it was kind of a voice that I knew. And then I'd have to throw in, gosh, Yoko Ono is in there. And, wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yoko Ono, that was no problem. And I study, I study her. And what we have was like Sonny Watman, you know, with the cassette. <laughs> It's all very uh, analog, and uh, analog. Uh, let's not go there. Um, <laughs> so I literally was building up a repertoire of new impressions, just ad hoc, and that's when I started to realise that there was a technique. You know, because obviously, when you're doing things, and it's sort of you feel, oh, this is by the seat of my pants. I'm guessing, but actually, when I broke it down, I realised that. The fact that I was a singer first was essentially the same skill that I was using for impressions. I have this, um, it's like people have a visual memory. I have got an oral memory. I can almost, I can hear the pitch of people and, and they are alive in my ears as much as, you know, people can visualize somebody. So I would have a visual picture as well because I also knew that observing somebody's physicality seems to relate to how the voice comes across and of course you know later on having been an actress for most of my professional career when you hear all these different methodologies and things about the voice being the seat of the soul and so on so yes. you know it is this idea I had that I was kind of empathetic or I was like you know if you want to get esoteric about it I was almost like channeling these people is not a million miles away from the truth because the first thing I had to do was to put away every feeling I had that I'm looking in the mirror and I can see Jessica and I'm five foot one. I am nothing like Princess Diana. Mm. And then I have to imagine that I am Princess Diana and that I've seen her on television and, and, and being slightly reticent and self-conscious and her head down a lot and, and, then, uh, and having quite a young voice. And suddenly I, I found that I could be her. You met Rory, you did some stuff on the radio, and there you were in your probably your early 20s, I'm, I'm thinking, because there weren't that many female impressionists around at the time. No, there weren't. And even though I'd had this lucky break meeting Rory, and, and I then developed an act, it first, first of all was a 10-minute cabaret act, and then it extended to 20 minutes. And Rory and I were doing the alternative cabaret circuit around London. We would do, there was a place called Crazy Larry's, which was a very popular place. And people like Harry Enfield and Arthur Smith were, were regulars there. 
And I hit this place, I was sort of in a plateau. So Rory Starr was fast in the ascent and he was yeah. sort of getting ready to do things on Radio 4. And I was stuck in this place because I was still a little bit old fashioned. I know I was doing the alternative cabaret scene, but I was doing my impressions. I was still doing Barbara Streisand, probably doing Judy Garland somewhere along the line, as or, you know, along the yellow brick road there. And the most up-to-date one I, I was doing was Felicity Kendall. So, <laughs> so these were fun things. However, yeah. again, it was rather like Rory coming into my life, you know, the Deus Ex Machina. The next unforeseen lucky event was the fact that we had two spitting image writers came to see, really, they were coming to see Rory with a view to him perhaps doing spitting image. Anyway, I was on the bill as well. And I did my Barbara Streisand. Um, guess what? You know, they really liked it. And they thought, oh, my goodness, Barbara Streisand is a spitting image puppet. What a gift. So the next, th- next week, I'm standing in John Lloyd's office and I'm doing my whole 20-minute cabaret act. He always looks like a slightly dis- disheveled, dishy geography teacher. Yeah, yeah um, no, we need to have a think about this because, uh, you know, it, it, there's a, it's a big budget involved. Let me have a think and I'll get back to you. So I'm waiting for this call, spitting image. Oh, my God, this could be the biggest break of my career. And the, the next weird turn of events was I came home and my dad announced that he'd taken a message from somebody at London Weekend Television who wanted to see me for a sketch show. And I said, Daddy, are you sure it, we're not talking about spitting image? He said, no, 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 it's not spitting image. It's definitely London Weekend. And this guy, Vic Finch, is going to call you. I was so clueless. I remember th- saying to him, yeah, Dad, that's all very well, but you know I've got an audition for a cruise tomorrow, so I don't know. Where. He said, look, just take, you know, when he calls, just be ready. Yeah. Anyways, within about three days, I was at London Weekend Studios. I was auditioning for a show the working title was Go For It, but the, the show would actually become Copycats. Mm-hmm. And I met this amazing man. I'm now going to do an impression which nobody but people who worked in light entertainment would know, but my name's David Bell, Head of Trouble. He was Head of Light Entertainment when it was Light Entertainment. He had worked with Stanley Baxter. He discovered Russ Abbott. And he discovered Gary Wilmot and Bobby Davro, who were two mm-hmm. of my fellow team members, because I auditioned on that day for David Bell, who wonderfully was, you know, he was very camp and he was old school. So he loved the fact that I was standing there doing Doris Day, Judy Garland. And then I said, I can do Tammy Wynette. So he said, OK, dear, do Tammy Wynette. And I sang, stand by your man, get up. Two arms, the curtain toes, you know, in this kind of staccato yeah. Norman Collier voice. And he just yeah. stopped me midway and he held my hand. He says, I think we found our girl. And literally my life changed. It Within two hours, he called my agent. I was in the casting director's office. The casting director, ironically, was somebody that I'd met through my agent like three, four months before and she was looking at me sheepishly like oh oh my god you've been discovered despite all my efforts to stop your career Uh, (laughs) (laughs) and so I mean there was literally it was like destiny taking me by the hand and then from doing copycats I was teamed with Bobby Davro so the story was that Bobby Davro was originally going to do a tv show with Gary Wilmot but I think Gary's agent wanted Gary to follow his own star and with Bobby 
I think I totally fitted the bill because I was up and coming. I wasn't a threat to him. He was the main star of the show. But as a girl, I'd be the perfect foil for him yeah. doing all his impressions. We had a, a reign of three years filming down at TVS Studios in Southampton. We, we were on primetime national television, 6.30 on a Saturday. Yeah, I remember it ITV. well. And Bobby, I always felt sorry for him, you know, in, in this sort of the 90s and, and the noughties. He came in for a lot of flack from the new guard, you know. The, the new guard viewed him as a bit of an embarrassing dad figure and they yeah. forget that he was an, he still is an amazing and precious and extremely yeah. funny. I used yeah. to make me laugh. I mean, I knew I could stand up in terms of impressionist ability. I have no doubt, you know, by that time I was confident that, yes, throw me Anne Diamond and I'm going to do my homework and I'll give you Anne Diamond and with a wig and the costume, we're there. But what Bobby did was, I mean, he would go out and we would be recording in the studio in front of an audience for three hours to do, you know, maybe 10 minutes that was going to go out. And he would have to entertain the audience who was sitting there watching take after take. And, and I fell into my shy, reserved, I'm going to behave myself and I don't have a script I'm not, and I don't want to look foolish. And he'd go out and he'd just ad lib or, or do jokes that he'd, that he'd done in his corporate yeah. gigs or stag do's. And he would always, always make people laugh. You were in the clubs. You were doing the alternative clubs briefly with yes. Rory. Did you feel that once you got pulled into the the mainstream, you know, early Saturday evening milieu, that you yes. were, you have actually arrived at the right place? Did that feel more comfortable to you than doing the clubs? In ter- not so much in terms of your personality, but in terms of the voices that you enjoyed doing. Yes, absolutely. It's funny, isn't it, how people say set a goal in life or rather shoot for the moon and you might land on the stars, but have the goal anyway. So in my mind, my goal actually wasn't to be an impressionist, but I loved light entertainment television. I loved shows like Who Do You Do, like the Mike Yarwood show, impressionists like Faith Brown, Janet Brown. And it was a dream come true for me to be in that place without even trying, if you know what I mean. I sort of ended up in the right place because I moved quickly from when I was in the mainstream doing impressions. I got the opportunity to do musicals and that was really where my heart was. It's like when that boat came along, I jumped on that boat because that was where I wanted to be. But, you know, I mean, like Bobby, I, I felt a little bit sad because I went through that thing of once the 80s had gone and I did crossover to doing musicals you know I did me and my girl with Gary Wilmot so Gary like myself we we both of us left behind the uh, I do my act thing to I am an actor in a production I go with the script I'm part of a story but I remember going up for auditions for various new impressionist shows in the early 90s and I could do the impressions but my heart wasn't in them I wasn't doing any new ones and there was a whole kind of new vanguard of people coming up through the ranks and I sort of thought well good get on with it but there was part of me that yeah probably felt that you know a little bit like well hang on I was there I was riding high and and you were all watching on television what doesn't that count for anything well sorry it doesn't that's Mm. just life you know this is and we're we're feeling it now I guess in this sort of strange the strange unprecedented times where maybe a few months ago people's identity was, oh, I'm definitely this, this is who I am. And suddenly, Jesus, who am I? I've suddenly got to change direction. But, you know, for people in showbiz, 
unless you have that mindset of, hey, you know, I'm, if I'm working, I'm lucky, but don't trust that this is going to go on forever because yeah. who knows, who knows what the next wave is. Do you, you feel you, you got tarred in, in a sense with that mainstream brush when you, you mentioned going up for other work as an impressionist and finding the, you know, the new guard coming through? Um, was that something that was apparent? I don't know. I mean, I think it's just the nature, isn't it? People want the new, the novel. And mm. if you are established as, yes, mainstream and you were, you were of a time, yeah, there is a bit of your variety, your Ellie, that, that's kind of over and now we want this. But it suited me. I kind of thought, oh, right, fine. Well, I don't need to worry about that. And in those days, I had a very, well, I had a wonderful, flourishing and fruitful career as a voiceover artist. And there were lots of voiceovers then. I mean, again, that's all changed. It's, yeah. It keeps changing. But, you know, I could use the skill of not necessarily doing different characters. I couldn't employ that, but the fact that I had a facility for accent, you know, and if I could, I could act different ages with my voice that, uh, and no one worried about what I looked like. So I could just take that into the voiceover studio and nobody was particularly worried about, oh, I need to have somebody that I saw on a sitcom last week because I, I, it'll score me cool points. You know, yeah. that didn't yeah. come into it. It's just, can you do the job and can you sell the product? Did you therefore in putting that to one side, and quite happily by the sound of it, you stopped that thing that you always did growing up of absorbing a voice and, and just throwing it out there because you can, because it's there, not, not because you're doing it for a job, just because yes. it entertains you. Yeah. Oh, I can do that voice. No one cares, but I can do that voice. Yeah, there, were, there was a part of me that I suppose almost rebelled as well because I've had years of doing so many impressions and acquiring, you know, here, you need to do Wincy Willis. Who remembers Wincy Willis? Yes. I can't even remember. Or Nina Mushkoff, you know, people at the time. And then people uh, through the last 20 years, they might say, oh, can you do a Sharon Osbourne? I think I don't even watch that blooming show. I couldn't care less. Yeah, "Yeah, I'll do a Sharon Osbourne if you really want it. You know, I can can take myself there. But what for? (laughs) It's a muscle. And if you can do it, you can do it. And there are people, as you know, Simon, who purport to, they might put impressionist on their CV and then you'll hear them doing, you think, oh, it's nothing like, or you're just Mm. doing, you sound exactly like you, but with a different accent. Yes. You know, it's something that you are kind of in a way born with, but you can enhance it and you can practice and you can make it better. I seem to recall coming to see your show at Edinburgh. Now, I can't remember the year. It was in the, probably in the 90s, and it was yes. in a kind of a circus tent. Oh, my goodness, you came <laughs> to see that. And oh. I have to say, I, I'm sure the show went really well, but we came to see you maybe very early on in the festival. We, yes. There were about 10 of us in the audience. It was a, an unmitigated disaster. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I dragged the family down. I wasn't performing then. I, d- I didn't start performing till well, maybe I was 90. Well, I didn't start to about 92, 93. Can't quite remember when this was. But what I do remember very clearly, but I don't know why I remember it, was you had a dummy, a dressed dummy in the seats. It was, it, we, we plucked up. <laughs> Does that ring a bell? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god oh you i wonder did, did i a, dance with the dummy yes, Maybe I, yes. but the show I, 
wasn't an impression show. You did some impressions, but I yeah. it was it was a and I thought, well, okay, you're you know here you are kind of branching out because I I'd remembered you from your days on copycats and and, and elsewhere. So this was a, a departure that perhaps one of your earlier departures. T- tell me about Edinburgh though, because I mean, let's okay. face it, it's so, horrible, isn't it? Yeah, it is horrible. And actually, <laughs> I will come full circle and tell you about my re- my triumph in, in last September in London yeah, with a cabaret. Please do, yeah. But, you know, I think everybody that is a solo performer has got similar stories. And mm-hmm. I remember after doing that show, I swore that I'd never do Edinburgh again, but I've been there and yes. I've fallen again. You know, it's yeah. a struggle. So my last time in Edinburgh before the show that you saw, which was it was called Curtain Up, it was in 1991 or 92. And Edinburgh had been a place of triumph for me in 1987. I went there with Rory Bremner, Steve Brown, Steve Steen and Harry Enfield. And we were we were with the Richard Stone Agency, who were a massive talent agency and they packaged things. And Rory and I were both with same agent. So even though Rory had gone his route and I'd gone off Bobby Davro, we were kind of united and we were all well known off the television. So we went to Edinburgh, we were at the assembly rooms and it was an absolute triumph, you know, sold out before we even opened. So I was thinking, yep, I've done the impressions. I've now been in a hip West End show, me and my girls, I've got an audience there. And my agent said to me, because I've, I've been going on about wanting to do a one woman show. So she said she put up some money for me to do a show. But you know what? I, all I would say to people doing Edinburgh is do your research. Get, everything has to be right. Your poster has to be right. You've got to work with people that you can trust. I'm not going to tell all the war stories now, but, you know, everything that could go wrong, yes. including a, 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 a pianist who was so bloody grand, he had me buy a piano for him and then was so, he was pissed and we were doing a show at lunchtime, you know, couldn't play the tunes. Oh, yeah. my God. It was how not to do it. Yeah. And the, the writer... Again, I won't mention the name, but I mean, he faxed the script for the show on our first day of rehearsal. So not only was it a one woman show, but I felt very lost. I felt very unsupported. And the venue that you came to was a brand new venue. It was called Assembly Rooms in the Meadows. It was a tent in a field. And um, you know who Don Black is, don't you? So Don Black, the celebrated lyricist, he came along to one show. And actually yours was a full house, 10. He came along, it was like six men and a dog. And I just remember he was so sweet. He did back an eyelid, but it was a a fantastic show, Jessica. Just, I mean, Shirley and I, we just, you know, we got the cab. The cab driver didn't know where to go. A couple of months after that, my agent offered me, I think the tour of me and my girl had come up. And I just grabbed it. Great. Oh, thank God. Thank God. I'm back in a hit show. We're going to set. And the courage of doing a one person show, I left that behind. But then I did. I I created another show. And actually, that show, even though it had its ups and downs, but I created a character called Veronique Remand, who was a Broadway Hollywood diva, you know, the one who would play the third cameo role in a Lucille Ball series or something and it was her her (laughs) stories of entertainment and working with her mom in Hollywood in the 30s and it was just a perfect vehicle for me to do impressions of the people that I wanted to do not was who you know who's current and who we should be doing on our show because it's it's feeding an audience of millions I knew that what I was doing was niche but there was a big enough niche for me to draw in a cabaret crowd yes I did four Edinburgh's and honestly, you, you, there's always that moment just kind of about January or February and you think, 
do you know what? I can really crack Edinburgh this year. Yeah. And, and then yeah. by the middle of August, when, you know, you've had five people through the door, you think, what was I thinking? What? Yeah. So, so tough. And I had one hit show there, which eventually turned into a Radio 4 series. But even that was, you know, it was beset by all kinds of horrors. And, and I yeah. would never... Oh, every time you vow not to do it again, you do it again. But fortunately, I'm retired, so that's that can't happen. <laughs> let me let me go on to. We we talked very briefly about technique. Now, one of the things that fascinated me, your on your website, you've got some great singing impressions. You do Streisand, which you've already mentioned Streisand, and you mentioned Judy Garland. And what struck me about the way you do those in those samples is that Streisand's got what I would call a fast vibrato Mm -hmm. and Garland's got a deep and a slower and a kind of a deeper and heavier vibrato and you've actually completely got both of those how much are you focusing on the elements of each voice how do you break it down and where do you where do you then go about sort of placing it in your throat or in your mouth what's what's the technique take me through it so barbara streisand um she's you know she's nearly 80 now but she still has this young boy quite high placed and um apparently her mother was a soprano a singer wanted to be an opera so that probably explains some of the difficult dynamics that we hear about with barbara and her mother but she is, it's, people are deceived. They think it's a big voice and it's not. It's placed high and it's through the, it is through the nose, the mask of the face, which is, it's a good, good recording voice. And so when she's singing, she's almost humming. So do you see what I mean? It's like, it's like a resonance that's coming through. But with yeah. Judy Garland, now I have read every biography there is to be read about Judy. And her, her singing teacher was her father. And I mentioned Barbara Streisand's mother being a soprano. And Barbara, uh, Judy Garland's father was a tenor. And so he would be singing probably very emotional, lyrical vaudeville songs, not quite opera. But this thing that Judy Garland had with the song and the voice, if you listen to her, it is almost, it's like a boy tenor. And so she has got this, actually, it's not as deep, although, interestingly, when I've been for auditions and I look through my songs that I want to sing, what fits comfortably for me, Jessica, is the same range as Judy Garland. And nowadays, we've got these amazing singers, you know, doing the technical gymnastics, singing up in the gods, but kind of belting it. I can't do that. I'm kind of a traditional old style. and. For me, Judy Garland has got, I, I feel that she's got the most pleasing. There, there's a warmth to her voice and approachability, but still a talent. So it's still not just because she sounds like your best friend and she's suffered all these things. There still is this awe of what she could give on a stage. She also was telling stories. I mean, the other thing is she doesn't just, I'm not just singing. I'm thinking and telling you a story, Simon. I've just made it up on the spot, even though I've sung somewhere over the rainbow a million times. So there was this just wonderful commitment that I love about Judy Garland. And I guess that's why, rather like yourself, although I, I 
Yes, I think I have retired. I'm not known as an impressionist. I can do impressions. If you wish me to do that, you're going to pay me some money to do it. Yeah, I'll be there. (laughs) If it's, you know, but I have done a number of gigs with a Rat Pack. There are several Rat Pack outfits. And David Lacey asked me to do several gigs a couple of years ago. And I was doing Judy Garland with a lovely full orchestra singing these hits and the audience loved it. And I was loving going out there being Judy Garland because it's the equivalent of David going out being Frank Sinatra. You know, what is not to love about somebody who was one of the greatest entertainers of the 20th century? Absolutely. And it's it's kind of... um... You know, again, it's I, you're you're working in a in a field of I guess nostalgia. It's it's I was going to say mainstream. It's not even mainstream. It's something that appeals to people of our age. But it's <laughs> it's not just that because you've only got to listen to those voices. We, uh, my wife and I, were watching something the other night, a rubbish thing called Modern Love, but they played in a, a Frank Sinatra song, and suddenly you're transported and you hear the the way he would deliver a song the emotion and the interpretation you think wow you don't have to be our age to appreciate that anyone can appreciate that so it's not it's not it's not as as esoteric as as you you know as people might imagine we're we're coming to the end and I wanted to ask you we're going to talk about your graphic novels but I just wanted to briefly ask you going back to impressions were there ever voices that you considered to be out of your range, either in terms of, I mean, it seems to me you can probably do any accent under the sun, but in terms perhaps of timbre or in terms of just achieving some of the the notes and nuances of a voice, and for whatever reason, you just couldn't nail it down. No. (laughs) (laughs) That's an honest answer. But the one that I had to really work on, Claire Rayner. So Claire Rayner was very large matronly lady who was uh, an yes, agony yes. artist, she was a nurse and a novelist, all these wonderful things. And, and I remember I had to do her on, on copycats. So I was dressed up in a costume and everything. And it was, it was like, I mean, I, again, this thing of like physically, I'm a million miles away from what Claire Rayner looked like. And when I heard her voice, it felt like a lovely, warm, matronly voice. I had to kind of imagine myself bigger. That was a tough one. It was one, funny enough, characters like her, you'd find men gravitating to because yeah. there's something almost, you know, when you're looking at a, a large lady, we're going into kind of pantomime dame territory. They become yeah. almost asexual. I don't know. I mean, probably nowadays it might be, I think it would be hard for me to do some of the younger characters. I mean, I couldn't do, goodness knows, I mean, even she's out of fashion now, but I couldn't do Kira Knightley for you. wouldn't know where to, in a million yeah. miles. I mean, inevitably, our voices do change. I know my, my yes. voice has ended up sort of way down here now, and I, you know, it's, yeah. it's. I always had quite a deep voice, but I find now that not that I do impressions anymore, but I do find that it's limiting. If I ever tried anything that I ever used to do back in the in the day, that was a bit of a, a pitch that I used to be able to achieve, and I can't now. How has your voice changed, and how has that affected your performing? Yeah, my voice is to say deep. It doesn't necessarily feel lower but I've had people say to me in terms of my recent cabaret show which I did a that's that's coming around full circle so Simon I did Crazy Cox which is this lovely club in London I did um, a show based on my memoirs which I've done as a graphic novel 
Yeah. So I did a show called Life Under Lights and, and it was totally sold out on two occasions. So it's almost like I've rebuilt myself. I have a different audience. I don't have, you know, back in the heady days of, of Bobby Dabra, et cetera. I don't have that kind of audience, but I have got an audience that comprises of people that remember the days they can remember me and my girl. And people have commented about my voice saying, oh, your voice is really, it's really mature. It's really rich. And I don't mind fessing up that, yeah, my keys are, when I'm singing, I prefer to keep the keys lower Mm. than they would have been a few years ago. Why fight? Because the other thing too is I don't feel the desperate need to prove myself all the time. And, you know, if I crack on a note, so what? I'm I'm a human being. I'm not I'm not a record or a CD. Yeah. Um, I'm a bit gentler with myself. Going back to Donny Osmond, who we spoke about, but I, I can always recall him on a chat show saying, I remember coming out of this dark place and saying, hey, Donny, do yourself a favor and just go out there and be average. <laughs> <laughs> and there is yeah. some truth in that. I think when you just yeah. kind of relax, you know, and just it's like the same thing in auditions. You know, you know, I couldn't care less. If yeah. I get it, I get it. What a, you know, I'm still gonna have I'm still gonna have a nice life. And so I find that more and more I still don't get things, but I don't care about them. And the things that I do get, I really love and I relish them and enjoy yeah. them. Yeah. Tell me a little bit then about your interest in art, your your drawing career, which is separate yes. and runs alongside, runs parallel with your performing career, and your move into the, the, the graphic novel. So in 2011, I did a tour of Spamalot. I was a very avid sketch artist. But I never, ever wanted to pursue it as a career because for me, it was always going to be performing. The drawing thing was something that I did almost compulsively from when I was a small child till when I was 18. And then when I was concentrating on my degree and then a career in show business, I practically forgot that I could draw. Anyway, took up drawing again. And the reason why I took it up was I, I found this amazing book, The Creative License, permission to be the artist you always wanted to be. And I mean, that could be a metaphor for all types of creativity. Yes. And then I just took up this practice of drawing every single day. I mean, it used to annoy my, my husband and kids on holiday. We'd be sitting down to a meal in a cafe and I'd get the sketchbook out and I'd be drawing them. So, oh, no, no, can, can we wait to get the bill? I've just got you, just doing your profile. So anyway, I'm doing spam a lot and my leading man is Phil Jupiter's. So I feel Jupiter's is a renaissance man, you know, he does comedy, but he's also, he also had a career, as he told me, he was a graphic designer and an artist. And so I was showing him my sketchbook and he just looked at the sketches, looked at me and says, oh yeah, you've got a really great sort of dynamic sketchy line, a little bit like Walt Disney in the 60s when they didn't rub out sketch marks. Anyway, he just said, you should do a graphic novel. And it was like, bing, light bulb. So when I finished that show, I thought, oh yeah, the offers are going to come in, they're going to recognise, can do leading parts, nothing. But with my nothing coming in, I was just self-educating myself in art. I was looking at comics, I was looking at graphic novels. I could see this whole world of possibilities. Okay, so maybe the acting opportunities are not as plentiful as they were. And I'm thinking, I'm getting older here, I don't have time to not do what I want to do. If I want to write and draw a story, what's stopping me? Eventually, I I got to meet some very wonderful people who've come to be my friends in the comics industry. 
And one of them is um, he's a, a top artist for DC Comics, Mark Buckingham. And he essentially he kind of took me under his wing about eight years ago and encouraged me that, that I had, A, I had a good idea. So I was creating a story called Elsie Harris Picture Palace, which eventually got published. And it's my it was my very first graphic novel. And then gradually I was sort of getting more recognition, but still having the freedom. I mean, I know there's a limited audience, but within that limited audience, actually there's quite a lot of people and they're enjoying what I do. So to date, uh, my memoirs, which I'll show you, Simon, even though they can't see it on the podcast, <laughs> but that's my book, Life oh, Drawing, right. A Life yes, Under yes. Life. And it's been nominated for two awards, so I'm really thrilled about that. But, and and is, my, is the book uh, available? And yes. Yes. So. It is. It is available. You can get it on Amazon if you want to be a cheapskate, or you could go to my website and order a signed copy from me. Even better. <laughs> Much better. Um, yeah. And if you can't afford or can't afford the space, there is a, a Kindle version available right. too. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, fascinating to hear about your career arc. And, you know, you seem to have been to lots of different places, but you re- retain this fabulous skill with your voice and uh, I think it's, uh, it's, it's been a, a real joy. Thank you Jessica Martin for joining us today. And, thank uh, you Simon for asking me. Thank you to everybody for listening to Making an Impression today and uh, from me and Jessica Martin it's goodbye.